1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And um, again, the, the key verse in, in 1 Timothy is actually down in chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And I love this, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Can't wait to get to that verse next week. But um, we are the pillar and the ground of the truth, the church. And uh, there's no higher calling than to be ambassadors of God. You know, if you're the ambassador of the United States to another country, that's a great honor. But we are ambassadors of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to the world around us. And, uh, and so here in chapter 3, he's going to actually give the qualifications of those who would have oversight in the church. He's going to first talk about the spiritual leaders, which we call the overseers. Um, and uh, some, some, it can be translated bishop or elder or whatever. But I like the word overseer because it has less baggage with it. You know, uh, people say bishop. Oh, that just oh, that, that, that makes me think of this or that, something religious. And, and uh, a lot of baggage comes with that term bishop. Um, and then elder, oh, I was a part of this church, and elder meant this, and these guys were controlling your life, and, and uh, it was, you know, like a shepherding church, and, you know, or you, you have the Mormons come to your door, a couple of young boys, elders, um, you know. Um, and so overseer, it, it doesn't, it means exactly the same thing, because that's really what we're talking about, just a spiritual leadership, not some big title, so you have power and position and you can start, you know, running things the way it should have been run all along. You know, and finally, they finally made an elder. Now I'm going to whip this place in shape. A lot of times that happens when people get those titles. Never, never meant to happen. We are all just servants, right? Being just like our Lord Jesus, watching one another's feed. But God does raise up people to be examples, to be leaders, to be shepherds, to to comfort and feed and and touch and heal the sheep the other spiritual oversight is that over the physical things a deacon and um, we'll be looking at that next week so those who lead especially in the society in which Paul was talking about probably meant being a leader meant you're probably the first to go to jail <laughs> the first to get tortured the first to be put to death and there was such a pagan culture that they were in. And it was so varied in paganism, depending on what part of, of Turkey or Europe they traveled in at that time. Um, it, was, it was very difficult, a very, very difficult job to be a leader of a church. If you're you know, fighting uh, some pagan religion like the God of Diana, um, or you go and there you got Simon the sorcerer, if you remember. He was controlling a village until Peter and the gang showed up there in Acts 10. It was, it was a difficult thing. One says it this way. The desire of, a, of the difficult and strenuous work in the church is a noble one. For the office of elder is honorable and in those days meant harsh and ceaseless work as well as grave and constant danger. Not so in our Western culture today, although it's, gonna, it's quickly heading that direction again. But um, 
In chapter 3, verse 1 now, this is a faithful saying. Paul says this several times. And in saying that, he's saying, this isn't my opinion. This is the word of God. This is God speaking here. This isn't my opinion. We can't all vote whether my opinion is correct or not. This is God. This is his word. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So we just ended chapter 2 in clarifying that men, not women, would be the main leaders in the church. They would be the main presence in the church service. And uh, again, we went into a whole sermon on that. And uh, it was funny as I, I try to say things as quickly as I can. It took me uh, about an hour last week. And uh, I was feeling sort of bad about that until I saw David Guzik, an hour and a half, and a couple other guys. I'm like, hey, I did pretty good, actually. Yeah, you know, only an hour. But it, it was very technical and uh, it was very lengthy, but it really laid down the path that the women um, are to not take the positions of spiritual leadership in the same way men would in the church to glorify Jesus. But it also is not saying that just any man is qualified to be a leader because he's a man. So now he's saying, hey, just it's not just a gender thing. Uh, just because a guy wants to be a leader doesn't mean that he's going to be a spiritual leader. But if he desires that, encourage that. Don't, don't assume there's something negative going on there. He, he wants to be a leader. Don't, don't assume and say, oh, he wants to be a leader uh, for his own ego. Uh, or he wants to be able to, people to look at him and praise him. That's why he wants to be a leader. Now, don't, don't, don't assume that. If they want to be a spiritual leader, encourage that. Help them on their way to become that spiritual leader. And so when a man desires that position, he desires a good work, and it is work. And um, we learn a lot about this, that we discover, first of all, it's really not men electing men or voting men. I grew up in a denominational church, and we voted who was going to be the leaders. And they were leaders for a period of a year or two or three or four, depending on the vote, and, and then we would swap out leaders. Well, not, not so. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you or ordained you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So Jesus is saying this is something that I choose. Those leaders have a big responsibility. Paul lays it on heavy when he talks to about the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28, he says, Therefore take heed to yourself and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Wow. We are dealing with very valuable merchandise here. Um, God's sheep, God's children that he bought with his own blood. And also it's putting yourself in a, in a different category on the day of judgment when God judges all our deeds, visible and invisible, all of our words that we've spoken. In James 1, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing 
that you shall receive a stricter judgment. Spurgeon says this, I always say to young fellows who consult with me about the ministry, don't be a minister if you can help it. <laughs> because if the man can help it, God never called him. But if he cannot help it, he must preach or die. Then he is the man. So aptly put. I could tell you in the, you know, over 33 years of senior pastor, any more than that, really close to 35 and, and beyond that, um, pastoring in different roles, assistant pastors and youth pastors and so forth. I have never one time ever encouraged anybody in the ministry. I've never once said, have you thought about going to the ministry? Never. But when guys are set on doing it, then I help raise them up into that place. But there's nobody out there going, what did you talk me into, Brian? You're quite the salesman. I hate your guts right now, but man, I, I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be here. You talked me into it. It's like, there's nobody out there doing that. <laughs> Everybody knows that I, I did not encourage anyone to be in the ministry. Uh, it's something they believe the Lord was doing, and we're just watching, observing, if indeed the Lord is doing that. It's also, again, a, a place that where every shepherd is going to not just give an account of what he taught and what he said, but he's also going to be responsible and accountable for each and every sheep that he was overseeing. In Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. Listen, as those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. So it is a good work he desires and we need to encourage those who believe that God has directed him in that way. And so he now gives a rather lengthy list of characteristic traits. He has another group of characteristic traits in the book of Titus. We're not going to look at those. We're just going to look at the ones here. But he starts off by saying a bishop or an overseer, an elder, a leader, then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. So this episcopal, this person who's a leader in the church, and, and by the way, in, in Acts 20:17, Paul directs, he's talking to the elders. There were many of them who were elders of the church of Ephesus, not just one. But um, he says that he must be blameless. Literally, this word blameless is, it should, could be translated, nothing to take hold upon. It's saying that there's no charge against you in the community that somebody can come and say, um, we judge you guilty of what you've done here in this community. It could be legally, it could also be morally. So standing before Christians, he would be found innocent and be found outside community, even more so, he would be found innocent. And so as I start to go into this, I just want to say that we didn't get out from underneath the Old Testament law so we could come into the New Testament and create a New Testament law. Okay? Twice, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there is no law for us. He makes it abundantly clear. He said not everything 
is healthy. Not everything's good. I'm not going to be brought into the power of anything, but we have no law. We have a relationship with Christ, and we are individually um, priest unto him, every one of us. Martin Luther in the great Reformation on the Wittenberg door hit the 99 thesis, and it's the priesthood of all believers. You, you can't say, well, God, I didn't know because my pastor said I shouldn't have a Bible. The pastor told me never to read that book of the Bible. Well, my pastor taught it this way, and, and that's why I believe that way. It's not going to fly. Everybody individually is responsible. And that's why Martin Luther was so set on interpreting or translating the Bible in the common languages, because he realized that no position of authority can ever be responsible for every one of us who have individual freedom and individual standing before God. Okay, and and so I, I just seen through the years there's certain personalities, you know. I, I think there's a certain personality that goes Pentecostal. <laughs> you know, if you ever if you've been to Pentecostal churches, you, you sort of see a common denominator of personalities there. And then I think there's a group of people that love to be Baptist. And if you've been to Baptist churches, you, you see sort of a common denominator of, of personalities there as well. And there's just the type of person that just loves to make everything a legal document. And, and they just love dissecting blameless, what's this mean? I had, this is no joke. I had one guy send me a tape series on this word blameless. And it was from a pastor's conference. And it was 33 things a pastor needs to know to be blameless. And it was not... It was not a one-hour teaching. It, it was like 15 tapes. <laughs> it's way back in the tape day, and I, and I just thought, oh, we've got, we haven't even got past a one. And, you know, the third one is your poop doesn't stink, you know, because if you're holy. It, it, was, it was like so ridiculous. And this, this guy who did it was it's a very well-known Baptist-type preacher. But it, it, it was just this legalistic thing that... Anybody that listened to that in his church would never volunteer to be a leader. If they felt like they had to be a leader, they're going to go somewhere else to do it. Because you are not going to be perfect as, as he's saying you have to be. So you're going to pretend you are. And that's going to put you into a whole other set of bondage. And, and this is the what I saw growing up in, in a denominational church is is everybody hid their cards you know nobody really let you know what was really going on with them because they were afraid of getting humiliated they were afraid of being told sorry you can't do this anymore and people are asking why aren't you teaching the Sunday school class anymore I can't you know the pastor told me I'm not I'm not blameless enough or whatever it is and, and so again this is not a set of laws and and the way I take this when a person says, man, it's on my heart that I would go into the ministry, what do you think? I just say, let's read 1 Timothy 3 and, and tell me what you think. And I'll tell you who's the hardest critic on ourselves. We know, right? Ourselves and Satan. And we're often a good team, us and Satan. You know, he condemns me a little bit and I start condemning me a little bit. And he throws a little more and I can, you know, before I know it, me and Satan have me really twisted up. And to a pretzel and, and feeling 
like, you know, even if God lets me go to heaven, I still shouldn't go there, you know, because I, you know, and that's just, there is no law in the New Testament. And I remember one time talking to a guy, this is when I was still young in the ministry, and, and he's like, yeah, I feel called. And I'm like, and I came here and I said, is there anything in the community that would hold you guilty? And he said, you know, and I did know, he, he had been an alcoholic for quite some years before he came to Christ. And he had been walking with the Lord now for a few years. And immediately he said, I still owe thousands of dollars in bar tabs around the county. And he goes, it's not that uncommon. I'll be down at the swap meet or at a Padre baseball game or whatever, and somebody will say, you going to pay up? Oh, yeah, I heard you became a Christian. It'll mean something to me when you pay the tab. They'd actually say that to him. And I'm just like, well, what's the Lord speaking to you then on this? And he just says, I've got to pay all my tabs off before I can be a leader in the church. And it, the Lord, when he when he's really focused on that, the Lord miraculously provided. And in a matter of a few months, they were all paid off. And he came back and he said, I'm clear of First Timothy 3. And as far as I knew about him, and I, I didn't, I knew as much as I know about anybody else who you see a couple times a week. You know, I mean, how much can you really know? You know, are we supposed to hire a private detective to follow you around for three weeks? That's a part of our budget to, to see whether you're blameless and and you're the holy, you know, obviously not. I mean, so from what I can see of you presented of yourself in the couple of times a week I see you over the last three years, I mean, you look clear to me on all these things, but you're the one who really knows. And... Um, and so again, it, it's just a, a really neat thing to, to see the Lord use this to speak to men who are really being honest. They're not wanting to be a leader because they're dishonest. They're, they're not uh, typically a transplant of Satan, you know, trying to bring you the men and act like a leader to, to thwart people. That's not typically the case. So it's really just to, to look at this. There is no law. What's the spirit of what the Lord's saying here? And I, I do think that there are things where uh, that people are doing, they'd read this, and in the community, they're cutting corners. You know, maybe immediately he reads this, and he just says, yeah, I'm being a little risky on doing my taxes every year, you know, or I know I'm doing this thing that's not illegal, but it's not that legal, but at the same time, I know that it would probably stumble people if they knew I was doing that or not doing that, and, and, as they read this, just as the Word of God does, it purifies them to say, yes, I want to be a leader, and there are some shady areas that got to stop. There are some things that aren't beyond reproach, is another way of translating this. Above reproach, blameless, that, that I, I need to sharpen up. And it's done. I'm leaving this meeting today. I'm leaving tonight after hearing the passage read. It's done. I'm clear right now because I've already purposed in my heart to, to be that man of God that God can use. So Paul said of himself, imitate me just as equals to I also imitate Christ. And Paul makes it clear he's not a perfect person, but yet 
for the majority of the time you'd be around Paul, you would be following Jesus if you followed his example. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our boasting is in this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity, godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. What an amazing testimony. Paul said, I, you know, I spent many months there in Corinth. And so has my team, my evangelistic team. And I guarantee you there's nothing I've done or any of them done that would hurt any man's conscience. And before God, God being our witness, you know how we served you in an honorable and clear way when we were with you. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2.12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when, not if, <laughs> when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. My immediately examples come to my mind in the Old Testament of Daniel. You know, they get those satraps tried to figure out something on Daniel. You know, we can get something on everybody. Everybody's got an Achilles heel. The only thing they could say is he prayed three times a day. That's it. That was the worst they could come up with. Well, that, that's a man who lives above reproach. Peter also says in 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience that when, when, not if, they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5 said, when men speak evil of you and lie about you, rejoice. For they did that to every prophet and every voice that spoke for God. They did it the same. Great is your reward in heaven. And then he says, the husband of one wife. So I think we can just take that literally and just say, you don't have more than one wife. I, uh, there's a pastor friend of mine who, who was going to Africa and, and a, a small tribe, they got saved. And the chief really got on fire for the Lord. And, and about the third time there, he goes, I would like to also not just be the chief, but be the pastor of the church. Again, a very small village. And, um, and he, they said, well, we have a problem because you have 10 wives. And uh, he said, well, what's wrong with that, you know? And uh, they said, well, you've you got to be the husband of one wife. And he said, okay, well, I'll divorce you at nine of them, which meant them and their kids would be shunned and, and horribly mistreated and in poverty. And they said, no, no, that would be worse. Keep your wives. You just can't be a pastor. He was quite depressed about that. But, uh, but in... The literal interpretation of this, it says a one-woman man. The, he's a one-woman man. In other words, the eyes aren't wondering. He's not wishing he had married somebody else or dreaming about having sex with all these other women. He, he you know, godliness with contentment is great gain, and he's content. He's not one of these guys that uh, you you know, girls are around and feel a creepy, you know, sensation, you know, um, that that he's he's focused on his wife only. And again, the legalists they try to say, well, this guy wants to be a, a leader, but you know, 20 years ago he he was married for three years and got divorced, and now he's 
been married. This is actually a second wife and they've been married 20 years or whatever, but sorry, you can't because you're, you, you've had more than one wife in your lifetime. I, I just don't bear witness with that. Again, I don't think we have a law here. <laughs> we have no laws. But I've seen groups, some Baptist groups, who say even if your wife died and you remarried another woman, you now can't be in leadership because you have more than one wife. I've, I've heard that. It's, it's sort of like, now, now you're just getting nuts, you know. But, but I've also seen where wives have abandoned men. Elders in the church, assistant pastors, senior pastors, where whatever happened after being married 15, 20 years, their wife abandoned them. And here he is. You know, he did nothing to, to be a part of that. Just Satan got a hold of her heart. And now he remarries. Can he be a leader? So again, I, I just don't think there's answers to these things in some legalistic rule type way. You know, we get the church together and vote. Um, or a group of a panel of elders get together and thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, get little black and white rocks, you know, white rock, black, you know. I just don't think there's any such answers that way. I think the, the principle is clear, that you're a one-woman man, that you, you're not, uh, you're not have a wondering eye, you're se sexually permissive. Here's a great quote. Paul fully was conscious, conscious of the low and debased moral tone which then pervaded all society and the empire. And these few words condemned all illicit relationships between sexes, directed that in choosing persons to fill holy offices in the congregation of Christians, those should be selected who are married, remain faithful to the wife of their choice, whose life and practice would thus serve as an example to the flock. That, that's peaceable to me. I mean, the general rule is you're happily married, you're, you're, you're in love with one another, and that relationship gives an example. Again, I know, know another group who said you can't be an elder till you are married. You have to have one, at least have a wife. You have to have a wife before you can become an elder. So there are no single elders. Again, I, I think those are ridiculous things. Next is temperate. This is, again, just a person who's not emotionally impulsive and reaction you know in an immature way you can have guys that are real immature and they just get you know excited in a moment and they do something that they'll regret later um the impulsiveness there needs to be a maturity where that youthful impulseness is gone dave guzik says this the idea is of someone who is not given to extremes they're reliable, trustworthy. You don't have to worry about a wide swings of vision, mood, or actions. I like that. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. The next thing on the list is sober-minded or self-controlled. It's a person, again, not given to rash actions, but calm and a wise spirit. The kind of person who's able to think clearly, with clarity, making prayerful and patient decisions. Proverbs 18, 13, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. 
The next is a good behavior. Interesting, this is the same word translated in 1 Timothy 2.9 as modest. Remember, the woman must worship in modesty. This is that word. So the, the leader is to have a modest spirit, or maybe I think a better way of saying it is dignified or honorable. One who's respectable or respected. So I think every leader needs to have a sense of humor or you'll get crushed by the ministry whether you're just a leader in the church or on staff if you don't have a sense of humor it's it's just life is can get very serious and if you can't vent with a little humor it'll crush you but i, I do think there is another time when there's pastors that are really stand-up comedians on sunday and uh and almost any other time they they also are are, are looking for the laugh more than a serious nature about serious issues. They have to have ability to, to be that respectable, respected person. Hospitable. This literally is lover of strangers. One who is willing to open their home to friends and strangers. I had a guy who wanted to be a leader and he was a very knowledgeable guy, very well together, put together, business type guy. And, uh, and in our conversation before he was going to become a home fellowship leader, um, he just said, well, there's one thing that my wife made absolutely clear to me, whatever ministry I ever do, our house is never opened for that. She has her house in a certain, certain way, and it just stresses her out to have anybody in the house. And uh, so I'm willing to be a home fellowship leader, but just never my home. And I read this to him, and I said, one of the qualities of a leader is he's willing to open his home. And, uh, and I think that's what they're saying. They're, they're not a person who is saying, I'm willing to serve to this point, as long as it's at the church building. But if it ever comes into my home, uh, I'm not interested. Now, whether your home's needed or not, you may live in a little studio apartment and we'll never use it but it's still that heart of, of welcoming people and and really i think that guest hospitality is is a spirit about a person even if you meet them uh, at church or at the grocery store the next thing a person's able to teach that doesn't mean he has to be able to fill in on sunday morning it just simply means he he knows the scriptures and he's willing one-on-one. -on -one. I think that's probably most of the teaching that happens in a ch healthy church is not on Sunday. I think most healthy churches have teachings going one-on-one -on -one in home Bible studies. Um, you know, I, some of the, the, the leaders that I've seen in our church, they have, you know, a home fellowship, but then they have a Bible study at work. And, uh, and then often... Uh, college, one guy, his, his, his college friends were coming over the house and asking questions he couldn't answer. He's like, Dad, can you answer the questions? And within a few days, he had a, a Bible study on Thursday nights for a bunch of college-age kids uh, just answering their questions. And so this is a person who is able to teach. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but rightly divides the word of truth. So a person who can do that very thing. Then in verse 3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. The word given to wine is, is that. It's a person 
who is not being overcome by wine or a drunkard or addicted to that stimulant or really any other stimulant. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. This is not saying you can't drink any alcohol. You say, well, that's what I think the Bible teaches. It, okay, you may think that's what the Bible teaches, and that's fine. It's just not in this verse. Because if it was a prohibition against drinking here in this verse, easily other words could have been used to make that clear. But he's, he's assuming they are drinking some wine. He's just saying that you're not being overcome by drinking that wine. And, you know, as I've traveled the world, I mean, big part of the places I've traveled in the world, water is not safe to drink. It just isn't. Um, and so you're going to drink something other than, than water. And, of course, for thousands of those years, they didn't have Pepsi-Cola yet, you know. <laughs> um, and so until Pepsi came, it was pretty much either some kind of distilled beer or distilled wine, uh, even a, a, a lesser watery version of it for the kids. But um, not with the hardly any alcohol content in it, but nevertheless, that's what they drank. The kids would drink the beer that was uh, watered down. But um, I do personally think, and I, and I say to guys that want to be leaders in the church, I just think it's a wise thing in our culture, just do not drink. Um, one, I, I think that often the person who is being affected by the alcohol, they're the last person to know they're being affected by the alcohol. They, they, they are drinking and they're alcoholic and their friends are telling them, your personality changed the other night at the party. Um, you know, as soon as you get home, you run right to the liquor cabinet. You know, you're, that's what you're thinking about most of the time. Uh, is is when can I have my next beer? That's that's called alcoholism. That's you're you're, you're being affected by it. It's, it has a controlling impulse. Whether you're it doesn't mean you, you got passed out or or even you would get a DUI. It's just the, the alcohol is an important part of your life and it shouldn't be. In Romans fourteen thirteen it says therefore let us not judge one another anymore concerning. We're concerning food or drink he's talking about in Romans 14 but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way years ago I was counseling with a couple they had just come out of years of alcoholism and they'd come to Christ they had gotten clean they were off alcohol but they were also just they had no self-esteem so the idea to go to a home Bible study where there's 10 people, it was just overwhelming for them to do that. But after months of counseling with them and encouraging them, I finally got them to, to go to a home Bible study. And they said, oh, it's actually in the park this week. They told them where to go. And they got there and they walked up and they're going, oh, yeah, you're the new people. Hey, you want a beer? Seriously. And they, they just said, nope, I think we're going... They came back and told me I wasn't on. It wasn't uh, at where I was at as a senior pastor at the time. And I told the, the senior pastor, and he got quite upset about that. But it was it's foolishness. That especially at a home Bible study, but <laughs> in Romans fifteen one, 
We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. So I think there's good reason we would say not just given to wine, but not to partake of it for the sake of those who um, have been overcome by it or been from a family of alcoholics and they're very scarred by that. And I would say any other, any other kind of stimulant as well, not just alcohol. And, um, and again, I, I would say be careful. You know, I personally was on medications, only the ones the doctors gave me, but those medications screwed up my life. Uh, up and down on a roller coaster for quite some years trying to fight the pain I had uh, after double knee replacement. And so I, I do know that, again, it can be very acceptable. It can be given by a licensed uh, bar or a licensed doctor. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're still not the one responsible of how things are affecting you. And then the next thing is not violent. It might be the alcohol is making them violent. You know, you got your sorry drunk and your mean drunk. Uh, maybe that's it, but if not, it's somebody who's not intimidating people or trying to control people with his temper. In Proverbs 16:32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. James 1, 19 and 20 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let us be even more swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And not greedy for money. Um, hopefully that is not what's motivating a person in the ministry. Um, in Titus, you, you did see in several places where you had people that contrast were leaders and they were doing it for the money and they were greedy even while they were doing it. In Titus 1.11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subverted whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. That was the whole religious house-to-house -house ministry they were doing, was just to demote people out of their money. In 1 Peter 5, 2-4, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly nor as being lords over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The next thing is being gentle. This is one who has a sweet reasonableness, a gracious spirit, a kindly person, one who has a forgiving nature. You know, I, I think that's probably the picture I have of Jesus while in human flesh more than anything. People that were witches whose daughters were demon-possessed had no problem approaching Jesus. People that were in poverty or lepers that needed to be cleansed. People that were the outcast and the downcast did not have a sense that they couldn't approach Jesus or touch his garment or to bother him at three in the morning. He was this person with this kindly nature who would love everyone, receive everyone, bless everyone. In contrast, Paul got very angry at some very forceful teachers, abusive, controlling people that came from Jerusalem in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 19 to 20, he says, But you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with 
it and one brings to you into bondage and one brings you and devours you and one takes from you one exalts himself and if one strikes you on the face so these guys saying that there's some special christian leader from jerusalem coming and they they did what they did in the jewish teachings they'd ask a student a question if he didn't have the answer they would slap him say try again it was just a very, it reminds me of that bumper sticker where it says, I, I survived Catholic school. Have you ever seen that one? I, I, have, I have some friends that got some very scary stories, very funny stories from Catholic school, but there was evidently some very mean nuns out there. And I, I will also say there's some people in some Catholic schools and they really loved it. It was very good. So I, I, I'm not trying to pick on the Catholics here. I, I just know that. Um, some people have some very funny stories about these kind of things. But anyway, next one is not quarrelsome. I, I'd say in contrast, not combative. In 2 Timothy 2.24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, be argumentative, but gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Again, that there's people that, that just love the argument, love to fight, love to get the the intellectual, you know, sword fight happening and, and draw blood and win. And no, it's, we're not trying to win arguments. You're trying to lead people to Christ. And it's okay if we're, if we're wrong. It's okay if we're not always on top of the argument. The next thing is not covetous. Um, again, the, the, pay, the pay is not the motive for why the guy is serving the Lord. He's trusting the Lord to supply his needs. Paul says of himself to the Ephesian church in Acts 20, 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He had no covetousness in his heart towards their financial things. Well, in verse 4 and 5 now, one who rules over his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? I think this is a, a very practical point. If he can't pastor the mini church of his household, then what makes you think he can pastor a, a church with hundreds, of, dozens of hundreds of people? And, uh, and so again, it's a challenge to raise those kids. It's, but really, when it really comes down to it, parents, we, we're pastoring them, right? I mean, the first thing we're trying to lead them to the Lord. My, my uh, son, Nathan, some of you guys know him, um, he, he was a hellraiser the day he was born. I mean, he slapped the doctor. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> doctor slapped him, he slapped him back. Hey. But, but he was, yeah, he, he was just, you know, bam, bam. You remember Flintstones? Bam, bam. Very strong. And uh, I remember one of the neighbors one time came across the street, said, Nathan, at that time, she was like four years old. He's like, you didn't know what your son did. He just grabbed my cat by the tail and swung him around and threw him over the fence. And by then, I, I, just, I was having a bad day already. And I just looked at her and I said, pray for his salvation. Would you pray with me? And she, she wasn't a Christian at all. And she's like, okay. But believe me, we were praying for our kid's salvation. And uh, after he received the Lord, right around that time, there was a sweetness that came upon him. He was still a hellraiser. That's another story. But um, at 12 years old, he uh, God really got a hold of his heart, and he really did become a, a very sweet-natured person. It was a miracle. 
But uh, yeah, I, I do think that we're not gonna we're not gonna be batting a thousand on our all our kids following the Lord and serving the Lord. They all have individual wills, you know. And I, I know that we have the prodigal son. <laughs> Um, that father seemed to be a wonderfully godly man, but you know his one son went off and got the inheritance early and, and spoiled his life. And the older son was a Pharisee and a hypocrite. And uh, he, but he seemed like an awesome guy. So it wasn't that he wasn't being a bad dad. It's just he had some very stubborn, hard-hearted kids. But um, in Proverbs twenty-two six, it says, "Train up a child the way he should go." And when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is a general principle. When you look at the Proverbs, it makes it clear this isn't like a promise of God is going to happen 100% of the time. He's just saying as a general rule, if you get the word of God in the kids' hearts, chances are that very word that you planted in their hearts when they were babies and one or two or three, it's going to affect them later on in life when things aren't going their way. It's going to come and they're going to bring all that childhood memory and all those teachings of the word back to their heart and cause them to to repent and um so i, I just say a couple of things that that i think are important that I, I share with leaders you know one is is try before the kid is 12 years old try to get through, them through the whole narrative of the bible hopefully several times you know you may not read all the genealogies to them or the book of leviticus to them but the the narratives the stories of the bible good storybook bibles and just get them and they know it backwards and and forwards and uh, the earlier when kids are small they want to read i mean i felt like i read the storybook bible to my kids every day like read another story read another story until they fell asleep uh, i can remember having one baby in my arms and a three-year-old over here and a two-year-old over here and and just reading the scriptures uh the storybook bible to them and um and then you know i, I was just very clear when they were very very young you know i, I told my three-year-old someday you're going to be a teenager and here's how it's going to go <laughs> <Get out. laughs> when i go to church you go to church i it's my house i pay the electric bill i pay the water bill so when we eat we thank my god don't don't ever challenge that and sure enough you know I told them that regularly in the time they became teenagers they, they never said hey I'm 14 I should I'm old enough to decide whether I follow God or not it's like yeah that's true so but don't don't question whether you go to church when I go to church you go to church and uh, and I, I think those things were important boundaries but I'll tell you something on the other side of the coin I, 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 I I'm the same person whether right now talking to you, go to your house, uh, you know, wherever I'm at, it's going to be the same person. So I never told my kids, okay, kids, dad got mad last night, said a lot of things to mom, a lot of words you don't even know yet, and uh, we don't tell anybody at church. I never did that to them. I've seen a lot of elders' kids and pastors' kids become very embittered at church and at God because they had to hide the family secrets at home or dad might get fired. There's something wrong there. And I, I think this is, again, a sense of all these types of things. So first of all, to pastor your home, teach the word to your kids. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk to them when you sit down 
in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And then to the wife in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. So Pastor Romain, I was sharing with the leaders this, this week at our leadership meeting, Pastor Romain, Chuck's assistant pastor, he was a gruff, you know, ex-army uh, guy who trained all the army recruits. And, and uh, you know, first time I met him, I, you know, he, he laid into me. But I, then I, I remember introducing a, a pastor to him, a new pastor, and said, hey, yeah, this guy, he's pastoring down. And Romain looked at him going, you're impressed with yourself, aren't you? <laughs> Just be, you don't impress me at all. Let me ask you a question. Do you read the Bible to your wife every day? If you don't, I don't respect you and you shouldn't be a pastor, get away from me. <laughs> That's the way Romaine was. And, uh, but I, I do remember, you know, those penetrating things and, and he wasn't joking. Um, he had, you know, he had to be the assistant pastor with all these bunch of hippies who, you know, didn't make it to church Sunday morning because God gave him a good wave. Um, it's like, Chuck will understand that I don't make it to church, even though I'm on staff and I'm supposed to be there. I'll just tell Chuck, hey, God gave us this incredible wave today, and I, I knew you would want us to keep surfing. And uh, he would just say, go talk to Remain. <laughs> well, in 1 Timothy 6 here, also not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, you fall into shame and condemnation of the devil. So not a new convert or not an undeveloped believer. A lot of times people are very successful in the world and they become Christians. They're like, hey, this is what I do in the world. I'm a teacher or I'm, I'm a coach or I'm a businessman. I, I know how to lead and I have a lot of natural gifts and, and I could bring this into the church and it would be a blessing in the church. And it's probably true. But you still got to give it time for them to uh, grow spiritually. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So we need to make sure that they've spent some time in spiritual warfare. I, I've had several times guys going, well, do you, do you think I could, you know, be an effective leader? Do you think I could teach well enough for a home Bible study? And, and I remember us guys looking at them and just laughing, going, Nobody's going to care whether you can teach the Bible study good or not. They're going to, you know, our concern is when Satan starts pounding on you and your family because you've stepped up to lead, can you handle it? That's our question. And that's exactly what Paul uh, goes on to say here. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Remember Satan, I will be lifted up. I will be as the most high God. That, that Satan, he knows our nature. He knows how we can be. And he knows that pride is the way to bring us down. This literally means to be clouded or deluded, self-deceived. Pride is the sin that turned angels into devils. In 2 Corinthians 2.11 it says, We are not ignorant of Satan's devices that he should take an advantage of us. And this is, again, you want somebody who's been around a while, he's seen how the devil works. Now that Satan, what does he do? Divide and conquer, right? It's the same old story. Look for the weakest link, get them embittered, get them upset, get them prideful, get them feeling 
like they've been disrespected and then they try to rip the church into part and try to rip the family into part try to rip the business in half try to rip the country in half right it's it's the same old story and we have to realize when satan's doing that that we've got to jump in there and and say no we're not going to let satan rip our marriage apart because uh, we see he's attacking us and you you know what to do second or ephesians 6 10 and 11 tells us what to do finally my brethren be strong in the lord the power of his might put on the whole armor of god you may be able to stand against what the wiles of the devil he's a wild and crazy guy but he doesn't the, the devil he was an angel he's not a man man is made in the image of god we have the creativity of god it, it, the devil is an angel he does not have that same credibility that same um, ability to create he just has his one bag of tricks and he repeats it over and over and over again and just he's relentless isn't he but he doesn't have character right because he's an ungodly creature so that's why the bible says we are godly characters so if we resist the devil he'll flee from us so we just need to out stubborn the devil he, he trying to divide, find the weakest link and divide. And we start praying and crying out to God because we see the spiritual battle that's going on. That's that's half of the work right there. You got to see it. And until you realize you're in a spiritual battle, you, you, you're you're fighting is useless. Right. Well, and then in verse seven, where we end here tonight. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, outside the church and the community lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So again, what's his testimony in the non-Christian world? Um, you know, I, I know some businessmen, and they spent many years being crooked as businessmen, construction or, or whatever the business might be. And they're sort of known in the community as, yeah, a wealthy guy, but he's also a dishonest guy. And now he becomes a believer. <laughs> And now as a believer, he's trying to undo that reputation. And sometimes it takes a long time. So, yep, everything checks. You're, you're ready to, to be a leader here in the church, but your reputation is still sullied, and Satan can use that to his advantage. No minister of the gospel can possibly be do unbelieving people any good unless they regard him as an upright and honest man. So again, this guy's trying to share the Lord with you and he also five years ago ripped you off. It's hard to listen to him tell you you need Jesus knowing that he still hasn't made things right from when he stole from you five years ago, earlier. Zacchaeus, you know, he went and paid people back this when he ripped people off. And then it says, lest he fall into reproach, a bad leader's bringing disrebute to the church and that snare the devil he's got him um, by falling by failing to live the gospel he fails he falls into the trap laid for him by the devil and it causes the whole message to look powerless to help anyone so really when we look at this tonight whether you're a leader or not we know these are all godly characteristics we want in all of us right this is the habit. This is the lifestyle of a genuine Christian, not just a Christian leader. Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians 6.3. 
We give no offense in anything, but that our ministry may not be blamed. I love that. Lord, we come before you now as we have line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, have weighed through some very difficult scriptures. And we ask now, Lord, that you would be glorified as you hide these things in our hearts and that we are, are in a season right now that you're establishing how you want the church of God to be here at Calvary Chapel, Los Alamitos. And that you would take these scriptures now and shine into all of our hearts. And if any of us say, I'm short in that area, I'm failing in that area, I'm convicted by that area. We know that all we have to do is come, confess our sin. You're faithful and righteous to forgive us of that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're pricked in the heart right now, you're convicted in your heart right now, just cry out, God, forgive me. That's the Holy Spirit. If you were not his child, you wouldn't have that conviction. But because you're his child, you feel that conviction. It's not a condemnation. He's just simply saying, acknowledge, confess, call it what it is, sin. And let me cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.